What'll it be, stranger? We're almost there. Here's what I want. I want you to trim the head. Take that shot of uh, Reed with the revolver. Just dump that, okay? And switch the title card. I want it to come flying right out of the screen, right at the audience. It's nice. Piece of cake. It's my guy. You're listening to the Hollywood Saloon. Saloon Shots, Round 21. From Los Angeles Times, dated Tuesday, September 28th, 2010, director Quentin Tarantino's longtime film editor who went hiking with her dog amid the extreme heat Monday was discovered dead early Tuesday morning by searches in Bronson Canyon according to law enforcement sources. Award-winning film editor Sally Minke, 56, worked on such movies as Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, and Jackie Brown. Minke had gone hiking in the morning, and her friends alerted police after she failed to come home. Sources familiar with the death investigation believe Minke became disoriented and collapsed, and the weather conditions contributed to her death. Winter said the coroner's office is still trying to determine whether the heat played a role in Minke's death. So, here you have... An extremely sad and abrupt end to a um, a very interesting and talented woman who um, worked with uh, director Quentin Tarantino um, on all of his work. And uh, and again, and you and I had been talking about this earlier, and it was so abrupt that it really it breaks your heart to hear something like this. I mean, she was fifty six years old, young. In terms of an editor, she would, she would be an editor for another 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, easy. absolutely. You know? And um, of such extreme talent because we've seen her work. Well, I know you saw her work back when you watched uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Of course. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? You loved that movie when it came out. Steve Barron, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, music video director Steve Barron, uh, 1990. That's right. I liked them Ninja Turtles back then. This is before the Ninja Rap with uh, Vanilla Ice. Oh, before the ooze, yeah, before the secret of the ooze. No, really. When you when you look at this this life, she was born in fifty three, died this year twenty ten. Again, and you look at her work, even for the small amount of a large film she did. I mean, she still had so much uh, further to go. Um, she worked with directors again, like you said, like Steve Barron, Oliver Stone, Heaven and Earth, right? Uh, Heaven and Earth, absolutely. When you take a look at Stone's work at that time period and how it had progressed through. The Doors and JFK. It's interesting to how different Heaven and Earth is in some ways, you know, compared to and then when he would go back to the hecticness and Natural Born Killers and Nixon and so forth. So uh, it's always interesting that equation of what does an editor bring to a film? What makes one editor special over another? What are the qualities? Why do you hire a Sally Menke over your other guys to do Heaven and Earth? I mean, we know why Quentin hires her every single time because once he cut Reservoir Dogs with her, he didn't want anyone else. (laughs) And that I completely understand Uh, from a filmmaker's point of view. When you have somebody that gets you and and has studied D.D. Allen and some of the other great editors, it was equally sad on that day as well when I had learned that D.D. Allen had died, another hero of mine, a groundbreaking female editor. It is one of those sort of professions in filmmaking that women have been excelling at for years and years and years, but often don't get the recognition sometimes. Well, with the exception, obviously, of Schoonmacher, however you pronounce it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we all know that she, you know, has gotten a lot of praise 
from working uh, with Scorsese for so many years. But but yeah, other than her, you don't really hear a lot of names. But again, when you look and you pay attention, you will notice in credits. It's like, well, look at that. I mean, a lot of times on, on films, people don't necessarily know a lot of editors. I mean, obviously you and I know editors to a certain extent, but we don't know them like we know directors. We don't know them like we know DPs. Um, or film composers and that kind of thing, that kind of down the rung. But overall, when you really think about it, they're so important to a film. I don't know about you. I I don't know. I've I've been editors. I started name checking as soon as I started cutting my own film. Yeah. I started having a lot more respect for that particular credit in a motion picture. Well, while I certainly have a lot of respect, I don't obviously know them like I know directors and such. But right, right. But it's that, I, and I think what we're talking about here, it was that that dynamic relationship between editors and directors that first got me interested. I remember because you know Dove Honig was an editor for Michael Mann on his first three, four films. Right. And I always found that interesting. It's like, oh, okay, so, you know, a director will often have one person that they want to ping pong back and forth with. And, you know, you find that kind of relationship. I mean, when you think about Scorsese, he had would have been working with Schoolmaker as early as college. They had known each other at NYU. So they were very familiar with each other in the early days of, of Scorsese's filmmaking. He couldn't get her to edit his films when he went to Hollywood because she wasn't in the union. But he got Marsha Lucas instead, <laughs> which is another very interesting collaboration because for three films, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver, in New York, New York, Marsha Lucas was a very important collaborator for Scorsese and also for George Lucas for that matter as well. And then again, I think he was able to finally get Schoomaker in to do Raging Bull, which of course she won her Oscar for, for her first film or I guess feature length film in that matter. But she got her background, I think, um, like a lot of other editors, you know, in the assistant editor where you're just, you know, doing assembly dailies and putting together sound sync and that kind of thing. And you work your way up through the ranks, which is a lot of how a lot of editors uh, are doing. You remember that documentary, The uh, Cutting Edge? No, of course. Yeah. I think it's interesting. And they note it in the documentary that women were often employed in the very early days of the film industry because editing was considered like sewing. Right. <laughs> and they needed that kind of delicate hands that a woman might have to glue pieces of film together and, and do that. So an assembly line type process. Now, when, when women started making more creative decisions as editors, I'm sure only came very quickly only because they were sitting there working with it all the time. And it would be hard not to pick up certain kinds of editing techniques and rhythms and so forth. I mean, I know we talked a lot about in the style show you know, different eras of, of editing and how you see certain styles jump out and the different rules of editing. You know, the old school rules were editing should be invisible. Right. You should notice the editing. It should never take you out of the experience of watching a movie. And then you got these sort of 60s European filmmakers that say, uh-uh, no, no. We want you to notice the editing intentionally. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then you start merging those schools. And, you know, today with the advancement of digital editing, you have all kinds of editing and techniques and ideas. And, I mean, we're in a real interesting phase in terms of there are no rules anymore. Everything is, is up for grabs. But it still comes back to the essential component of the relationship between the editor and the director because that's the big wizard behind the curtain of the auteur theory is everyone thinks the director is responsible 
for every single idea, every single edit, every single thing in a movie. And that often is exactly the case when it comes to approving those ideas. But coming up with them is, of course, a collaborative effort. And there's going to be all kinds of ideas and, and bouncing back and forth and sort of suggestions that are going to go into that process. And certainly having someone that understands where you're coming from and has similar influences that can take your footage. For some people, it's just directing. They don't have any concept of editing that are working in Hollywood today as directors. They're just, their responsibility is to direct the picture. Then it gets handed off to experts that know how to go through footage, know when to do a cutaway and where to use it and how to mine and, and find those kind of things. So, which is a talent into itself for sure. Well, and I think what we're really talking about here is that relationship, like you said, the thing that matters is it's really iron sharpening iron. You know what I mean? You want to have someone in uh, by your side when you're cutting, who um, number one can challenge you, who has a close enough mm-hmm. relationship with you, you can say, "Well, what about this? Well, did you think about this? Or what about this?" If you're the kind of director that allows that and is open to that kind of collaboration, now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the importance here is that what we've seen time and time again over in, in, in film history is these collaborations that last for many years of a director says, well, this person is the person who cuts my films because they know exactly where I'm going. And uh, this is a great uh, quote that I found that really fits with um, Sally Menke is that Quentin Tarantino has been quoted as stating the best collaborations are the director-editor teams where they can finish each other's sentences and that his own editor, Sally Menke, is his only truly genuine collaborator. And if you think about Quentin and the fact that his films look a very specific way, you can turn on a film if you don't necessarily know who directed a film and you watch it for a while. If you have any kind of concept of who he is and what his style is, you could say, wait a minute, this is a Tarantino film. You can see his particular style. I and mean, obviously that's you know an auteur type of a theory. Where you can see his 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 work just by his well, his willingness to let shots hold for one. That's the immediate thing that jumps out to mind is he'll let performances breathe in his movies, and it's so rare that you don't get a lot of that. So many movies are in a hurry to kind of get through things, and they won't do that type of of lingering, if you will, because Tarantino's scenes always feel a little fatter, a little airier than other movies in that kind of way. And what I'm saying is part of that is the reason that gives him his own particular style. Did you ever see his uh, CSI episode that he directed? I didn't. Yeah, it's really interesting because if you ever watch CSI and you see a bunch of them, when his episode comes on, you'll know in 20 seconds it's different <laughs> because he hasn't made a cut yet. You know, <laughs> He's just holding on his shot of the guy walking to the crime scene instead of the staccato-ness of, of a typical episode. I mean, already, you know, he was Im- imposing, you know, his feeling and his style into, you know, that show. Sure. But, you know, I think back of, you know, what it must have been like for him collaborating on his first film with Sally Minke. How important it is for, for judging performances that an editor, editor can often be to where you have two that you like and you can't make that decision. And it's not a question of one. They're both equally good, but there's something different about each one. And sometimes you need that kind of counterbalance to say, nope, that's the way you want to go because it fits with this or this or the other. Well, thing. it's always good to get an opinion other than yours, especially when it's someone who you completely trust. And that's really the kind of relationship he's talking about here and the kind of thing that's littered throughout cinematic history is that once you got 
close enough to where that person understood your style, it became that style. See, the interesting thing is going to be, obviously, is that you know Quentin won't quit making films now. But this is going to be his first attempt, whatever he does next, at making a film without her. Because, uh, mm-hmm. because really, I mean, she's been there from the beginning. We don't know what Quentin's style is without uh, Minky as his editor. So we may see a, a shift in what he does. Uh, you just don't well, know. Well, it won't shift the way he shoots or photographs in a particular scene. Because obviously that is uh, – you know, the footage he's given her. And I've often read that that is the biggest advantage, I think, for a lot of editors is they were not there for the film shoot. They don't care that it took 20 days to shoot that scene. If it doesn't work, they're going to cut it because the film plays better without it. And sometimes it's hard as a filmmaker because you live with making of the film. It's harder to make those slices sometimes because you fall in love with your darlings and those little things and those moments and those things. And sometimes it really takes a good, strong editor to kick your movie into gear and kick it into shape. Uh, We never get to see a lot of these earlier work print versions and earlier work cut versions of films that uh, get pruned down to the ones that, that we see when they finally come out. But the ones that I have seen are always sort of fat and indulgent in different kind of areas where, you know, you just – a really good editor will come in and streamline a lot of that stuff. Well, yeah, and really, I mean, there's so many different varieties of what an editor does. I mean, there's just no way to even discuss it all here because you want someone who you can butt heads with. You want someone who you uh, can trust to to do it if you have to walk away for a couple days to to have your right instincts. Uh, on and on and on. I mean, such a multifaceted thing to have that relationship. And again, I go back to you know that's why we see it occurring time and time again. I wanted to throw out a few names here for you because, like I said, we saw it, you know, uh, Coppola and Walter Murch. I mean, uh, that's a relationship that goes back. Now, that's the one that really changed my views on the auteur theory and Coppola in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't, it didn't make him any less of a filmmaker in my eyes when I learned this. It actually made him more of a filmmaker. But it was the uh, opening shot of Apocalypse Now. Right. I think I spent 25 years admiring that opening shot and what happens in it and then how the camera pans and then does the montage imagery. It's almost like an overture for the film in some ways of the things that are going to happen and the and the just and the blades coming in and the wiping and then how it all ends up in there. And I always just thought Coppola sat down at a typewriter and wrote that scene <laughs> and then went out and shot it. And then cut it into his movie. Wrong. It never occurred to me that it did not happen that way until I learned that it was actually just a day of Coppola going into the editing room to meet somebody who was busy. So while he was waiting, the other assistant editors were watching dailies, listening to Doors music. And Coppola sat down and started watching the footage of Doors and went, hey, that's pretty good. I like this. (laughs) And then, obviously, the conversation happened, and Murch got involved, and now I don't know if Coppola said, now, why don't you add the images of the statue and the blades or whatnot, or maybe that was Murch's idea. I don't know now, but it just leads me to know that there was an open door of collaboration in that room, and a lot of ideas got poured in, and it is the job of the conductor, i.e. the director, to conduct it all into his film and make sure it all works, no matter whose idea it is. The director's ultimately accepting it, but it just... 
made me really sort of expand my, my thinking and respect the collaborations that kind of go into that and how you don't necessarily have to have every frame of your movie worked out as a director. Oh, hell no. Even the greats don't, you know. Oh, I hell mean, no. But you, can, you kind of grow up in a Hitchcock school or a Coen Brothers school. I mean, I can remember reading an interview with the Coen Brothers storyboard artist, and he said that when he watched Raising Arizona for the first time, it was only three shots different from the storyboards he did for the film. Wow. Now, that's filmmaking on a different level, of course. Not all of us are in that kind of school and whatnot, but that to me is kind of interesting in some ways because, um, you know, well, that's another kind of collaboration is between, you know, storyboard artists and, and filmmakers and how they help them realize angles and shots and, and that kind of thing um, and the whole previs thing. But again, it all goes back to collaboration and it all goes back to that tight-knit relationship that you have. And, you know, there's a reason you know, that I think Coppola and, and Murch have worked so well together. And, you know, I was thinking about Spielberg and Michael Kahn. They've been together, and Kahn's been cutting on a flatbed <laughs> since the 70s, right? <laughs> I think he only just now moved to digital, finally. Um, he was the last guy in town cutting on a flatbed, wow. uh, 35 millimeter film. God, my heart goes out to him Ugh. for Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Oh, and, my God. And The Terminal. I mean, all of that, you know, World of the Worlds, he's out there on his flatbed cutting film. But do you remember um, Verna Fields was the editor of Jaws? Mm -hmm. And she was often sometimes credited with saving that movie. Or Jaws, the story of Jaws goes as it was saved in the editing room. Right, because the monster was such a, such a bust. Exactly. You know. But, I mean, all over, there's all kinds of interesting editorial flourishes in Jaws. I mean... I defy a student filmmaker not to try and cut with people walking across the frame. Yeah. <laughs> I defy a professional filmmaker not to cut when people are walking across the frame. It can't happen. We all just indulge and everyone does it that way now. It just, you know, that's just the way it's done. Such a good transition. I thought it was interesting, though, when Spielberg did Closing Encounters, he intentionally got a different editor, as if to say that it was Spielberg, not Spielberg and Verna Fields. <laughs> but he's been with Michael Kahn ever since. Again, you got to remember, is that while the editor is very important, he still serves the boss, and the boss is the director, and it will always be that way, unless it's just a, you know, a commercial hit piece. Where someone's throwing it out real quick and it doesn't matter, and he's not, and the the director's not invested. But the director's invested, obviously, he's going to see it through. And it just depends on, you know, you were talking about how Merch was working with uh, Coppola as opposed to say the Coen Brothers. And and really, if you if you think about, um, and you know, I had to do this. If you go to George Lucas for a minute you, and you look at some of those behind the scenes on how he made the prequels, you see all this stuff about. Really him saying that now I can really make the film that I'm in post. We all know that George Lucas is so much more comfortable in post, in the editing, and, and just taking shots and creating. I remember watching a part, a scene where he, uh, he had them uh, stretch the shot. Meaning, like the shot had borders on it, you know. It was like it was like it went from this to this, and he said, "No, no, I want to make this a wider shot." His idea of editing is such a completely different ballpark thing than the traditional editing we're even just talking about right now. And then again, it has to be led by that kind of a person. Whereas then there are people like Cohen's, and you know, I personally 
that would drive me batshit crazy to try to match up and to say I can only go according to my shot sheet or my storyboards. You know, you just I've, you've seen so many different stories about some people that are slaves to that, and it's all done ahead of time. But think about it. Now that you know that about the Coens and you watch their movies, it doesn't feel that way. They sit in a room after they write the script is, how do we want to shoot it? Well, let's come up with a plan. And that's what a storyboard is. So you have yeah, a but, way to do it. But what happens when you get to something like what Stone did with Natural Born Killers? That's adopting a different kind of – that wouldn't work for like their new movie True Grit. You oh, know what I mean? of course not. I think True Grit, they can figure it out on paper. They can go out and approximate it. And I'm sure if they see a new shot, they're going to grab it. But it's just you come in with a game plan of what are your priorities because they're thinking like an editor because the Coen brothers edit their own films. Right. Roderick James. Right. Now, they've worked with Trisha Cook as well, so that's been the, the sort of editorial relationship. But, I mean, again, they think like editors when they write, they think like editors when they shoot, and they think like editors when they edit. And the best filmmakers do. It is fascinating on how that, that relationship can work because you know by this point, you know, like between Thelma Schoomaker and, uh, and Scorsese, she can put together scenes of rough assemblies that I'm sure are really – Honing in to about 90% there, you know what I mean? That only need the finest of tuning, probably. We talked about this, I think, in one of the other shows, too. But, you know, I think about how great it must have been for um, Pietro Scalia and Joe Husting working on Oliver Stone's JFK, which is just such a monumental editorial achievement anyway to think about on so many levels because there's two or three films within each other in it. But all of those interesting little editorial flourishes that are... Just scattered. Sure, but that's that like film. that's like I was. It must saying. have been a field day. That's like I was saying. It's this ape shit thing where I could see Stone saying, "Okay, you go work here. You go work here. You go work here, and we're going to come all together, and we're going to, you know, see if we can what we'll come up with." Oh, then what he does is, is once they're done, he takes somebody's work and he gives it to somebody else, and they trade off. Oh. So now yeah. you're editing what somebody else just worked on for a day, and then you're doing your thing to it. He mixes and matches, and then he ultimately he makes a decision. Some filmmakers work with editing teams, and others are kind of one-on-one and i like that kind of one-on-one sort of process and that sort of what we're, we're honing in on i mean i understand kind in typical saloon fashion this conversation's going all over the place i mean we lost a great editor in the world of cinema it is but i think if anything like i said you know when we first saw this story this morning that you and i were thinking the same thing is that is really it's it's about that relationship it's not her as an editor, it's the collaboration that she's had for so long and been so wrapped up with Quentin Tarantino. And that, uh, you know, we're at a point now, like I said, where, you know, what's it going to be afterwards? We're going to, it's going to be interesting to see where he goes and um, for him to trust someone again, um, you know, to, to be able to have that kind mm-hmm. of a, of a of a relationship as he moves forward. So uh, he it, might have to edit the film himself. Right. You know, or just call his friend Rodriguez. Oh, there's a handful of filmmakers out there that still do that. It's rare that that a filmmaker will take an editing credit in general, but there's a few filmmakers out there that still edit their own work. The guy who directed Rocky and Karate Kid. Oh, John G. Edwardson. Yeah, he was always an editor. Edwardson has always worked on on a lot of, on his own films. He's always had a couple other editors, but yeah, he's he's often takes a credit. We know right. James Cameron is now in the editors' guild, so. He takes a credit on his film as an editor now. What if you make one? If you make one cut, you got to be in the union. <laughs>
I got a list here. Let me just flash from through your through. Well, let me see. You got Joel Cox and Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Right? That's a relationship of over thirty years in many films. Oh, I mean, I remember like Joel Cox was like an assistant editor on like Outlaw Josie Wales, mm-hmm. and then I would see his name on all the films. Right. Um, really, after that, uh, Spielberg and, and Michael Kahn. Right. And you said Richard Donner and Stuart Baird. Which was, you know, right? They worked on several films together. All the Lethal Weapons and Superman and uh, such. Uh, Cronenberg and Ronald Sanders, David Cronenberg. Right. He's done all of Cronenberg's films, I believe. Right. Well, it's just thirty plus years, and then uh, um, uh, Robert Zemeckis and Arthur Schmidt is one that you saw quite a bit through all the Back to the Futures okay. and Roger Rabbit and all those those great films. And there's many more. Oh yeah, I always remember Alan Parker and Jerry Hambling. Jerry Hambling, to me, is just one of my all-time favorite editors because anyone that does Pink Floyd the Wall <laughs> is an amazing talent in my book. But he also did things like, you know, Bugsy Malone and Evita. And as Parker puts it, he's the best music editor that he's ever met. And whenever he's got a music-related project, he lets him loose on it for sure. Nice. And when I think of a film like Pink Floyd the Wall, of course, there's all kinds of editorial touches up and down that movie. That are going to be influenced by a powerful you know, vision behind the visuals. I mean, we talk about our master, our sensei, Sam Peckinpah, and, and how he even got to the staccato moment that defined him mm-hmm. as a filmmaker in that way. That became his signature, <laughs> which meant as an editor on his films afterwards, like Roger Spottiswood, who went on and became a director, you would still have to cut according to Sam's frames – or it wouldn't even feel or look like a peck and paw. A peck and paw is all about a frame or two. You, you you add back in or one or two of those frames, it doesn't feel right. Right. It feels like those imitators. It's the back and forth that that really was his signature. You know what I mean? It's like no one could do the back and forth. We've seen people attempt the back and forth and not get it. You know, where I'm talking where somebody shoots and you see a guy fall and then they cut to something else and then you go back to the fall and it's going in, you know, about 120 frames a second. Again, it's it's that it's the honing of the frames. And I know I've heard Tarantino talk about frames all the time because he knows what he's talking about when it comes to editing. I think Tarantino is an editor by nature. Which means if it came down to is, is if you gave him a roll of film and he had to shoot something, I think he could sit down and cut together a scene. Right. I think he's probably very competent on how, one, well, how he wants one shot to cut to another, to another, to another. Sure. In that kind of nature. Um, because you just don't think of the kind of camera setups that he does. It's how he uses them, too. That just makes me confident that he kind of knows what oh, he's he doing. Oh, he knows when he's shooting what he, what he's going for in the editing. The nice the nice part about having an editor you can trust is the fact that they can do all this heavy lifting. You just you just beat the shit out of yourself going through uh, pre production and production. And now you know, and, and often mm-hmm. uh, you're editing while you're still shooting. And uh, so, really, let this person do the heavy lifting and all the administrative work. Um, and get it all pared down, and, and you know, I mean, you got to sync it up, and all this kind of stuff, which is what you have assistance for. And uh, I mean, really, it's it's a machine because you're trying to hit a release date a lot of times, and and it's a whole different ballpark when you start talking about things like visual effects and sound editing mm-hmm. uh, for anything that's above you know the the normal. You know what I mean? If you do have got you know giant robots stepping down and shit, you know, I mean Michael Bay, I'm mm-hmm. sure has got his uh, an army of editing going on after the fact with all these different uh, departments. 
But really, I mean, it's it's let, let's come back to that relationship, and we're talking about great directors here. We're talking about people who are um, gods, if you will, and and. and Part of the reason they're in that way is because they've got their sidekick with them. They've got someone there with them who they trust, who they completely, like uh, Tarantino said, can finish their sentences. Right. Well, think about Joe Cox and, and Clint Eastwood. Joe Cox has never tried to adapt an MTV style to Eastwood's films or in that kind of thing. Right. You know what? Right. He follows the rhythms often that are much like Eastwood. I mean, there's a knowing in there. He knows what Clint wants. Of course, Clint is famous for taking first draft screenplays and going, "Okay, let's shoot it." <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. We don't need any rewrites. We don't need any pink pages or blue pages or yellow pages or green pages. We're just going to shoot the white pages. Yeah, that's that's great. Let uh, it roll. And you know, the film often will come out just like the script. You know, <laughs> it'll be cut together in a similar way, and that'll be the movie. You know, I think about just how much fun it must have been when uh, Kill Bill came in. To be able to step up, because that, that was really something they had never done before as a team. Because if you think about all the violence in Tarantino's films, it's Sergio Leone fast. That's how he does it. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. There's no slow motion in, in Reservoir Dogs when they all shoot each other at the end. Yeah. He didn't try to, to make that last any longer. It's fast, and they drop, and it's like, huh, what? Yeah. And uh, that's been his trademark in all the films. Um, but... Until Kill Bill, of course, you know. Oh man, <laughs> where it's like, okay, now I'm going to do something a little different, you know. And how fun to cut the big battle, you know, with the crazy eighty eights or whatever they were called. I mean, just think about all the footage that didn't make the movie. Oh, of course, <laughs> the miles of footage they shot that did make the movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, you got Robert Richardson on camera on that, so you know you just got one great image after another that. You know, you were having to pass by as an editor to get to an even better image. But uh, I love the uh, the high sallies that they do on the, the DVDs. Did you watch all those? Um, what Tarantino would always do is he'd have his actors often turn to the camera and say, Hi, Sally. Oh, gotcha. Just to cheer her up. As that, you know, footage would come in. Uh -huh. So often, you know, you'll just be in, at the very end of the scene and then someone will just turn and give a hi, Sally, you know, right to her. <laughs> hi, Sally. <laughs> Which then he'd collect them up and they make gag reels out of them at the thing. But, you know, how much, what a great idea. What a love for your editor, too. Because you know when she's just pouring through that footage and that happens, it must put a smile on her face every time. About 24 kilometers outside of Paris, the bastards will be waiting from you. So close. Hello, Sally. So <laughs> what I love also is that she was in tune with, you know, the rhythms and patience where, you know, some editors might say you need to cut it faster. Jackie Brown, we can pull 15 minutes out of it. Right. We can pull 20 minutes out of it. But, you know, she she protected them in that way to, to allow those rhythms to linger in that kind of way. You know, I mean, both Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, I think, are almost the same length. They're about two and a half hours. And I think Almost Bastards is about the same length in that kind of way. That's about the canvas he's playing with and in in those stories he was telling. I mean, really, Reservoir Dogs and Kill Bill 1 are his leanest films. Just what an achievement. You know, I mean, all of those films. I mean, you know, Pulp Fiction is going to be remembered forever. I mean, forever and ever because of its style and its wit and its and its uh, sure. its depth. I mean, you think about that. Is that if she's going to be remembered for anything, and she was nominated for an Oscar, 
um, for Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. is that um, Arthur Schmidt won for Forrest Gump, didn't he? Oh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. But uh, I'm thinking if it was '94, that's probably what happened. <laughs> it, yeah, well, '93, '94. Arthur Schmidt did work with Michael Mann on Last of the Mohicans, so '94. Yeah, he knows. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He's he, he knows his shit, obviously. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, she is going to be remembered forever for that because you think about it, it was like. Yes, we have seen disjointed time before where things aren't in, in any kind of chronological order. That that was around before Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and different films like that. But really, it was kind of a resurgence. We hadn't seen that. It had been asleep for 20 years or so. I think that's what made kind of Quentin so unique. And I guess he's like the kind of guy that likes that band that nobody else likes and goes, I can't figure out why nobody else likes this band. Why didn't anybody else do this? You know, yeah. they're stupid. Yeah. And so he puts that out forefront, and you know everyone goes, "Oh yeah, I do like that." You know, well, and but, it, it uh, was new, and it was fresh, or it was re- a resurgence. Now it's not something that was found in the editing room. That's important to to, to make. They are in the scripts. Oh sure. So I mean, it was all planned out in terms of that's the way where the flashback was going to go and how that was going to be structured. Whereas some films have often attempted to do that in the editing room. Is to create right. a type of structure to save a movie. Well, and and I think still though is that she facilitated that as an editor, even in her first collaboration with him, was to say, you know, we are going to go down that path. Tradition be damned, and uh, I mean, it, it, she she had to be brave as well to get what the hell he was doing, you know, and she had to she had to grasp that obviously, and so she did, and so again, hats off to her for. Um, being a part of that and and really bringing that kind of editing back into the fray, which was really exciting back at that time. Um, obviously, you know, hats off mostly to Quentin Tarantino for that, but but you know she was part of that. She was his collaborator, as uh, as he said. I can see the two of them, and it's that shot where uh, Cartel and um, Bushimi go into the bathroom, and the cameras at the end of the hallway, and it holds there for a while, a long while. Until Keitel starts trying to light the cigarette and he flicks, flicks, and then it's a close-up transition and he's out of it. And I'm thinking, he was probably thinking the whole time, I'm going to hold it as long as I possibly can. But how much fun it must have been to sort of defy expectations at that time, cutting a movie when they were making that, 91, 92 at that time. Because it was just so unusual. A lot of films were starting to pick up their rhythms and just wouldn't let shots and scenes linger like right. that. Again, a lot of brave choices all up and down that movie, which uh, make it so fun. And, you know, deliberate things, again, not being so obvious and uh, and letting the viewer sort of have a little bit of mystery and intrigue. Or how about panning away from the ear being cut off and still feeling it the entire time? Everyone always talks about the ear scene. Exactly. And they forget that it, it pans away. <laughs> right, because it's all about, you know, you you know what's happening and you can picture it in your mind, but you don't need to see it. And that's mm-hmm. almost worse than if you actually were to see the prosthetic and all that kind of stuff. Well, he does show that later with it cut off, granted, and it is shocking after that. Coming off is a whole different ballpark. That's the whole thing. He didn't need to show that. I think it was the intensity of the torture leading up to it. Right. That by the time the camera panned over, we just filled it in. Mm-hmm. That's just good filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, it's a very similar pan shot like in um, Taxi Driver when Travis is on the phone and the camera just suddenly slides down the hallway and it's that empty hallway. Right. 
it moves off the action down in there, and you can kind of read into it in all kinds of different ways. But uh, it's a beautiful camera move. For great sure. filmmaking, great editing, absolutely. But anyways, as we cover this topic, really, I think let's come back to this point for a second, that uh, this is a heartbreaking loss for the film community, for her family, for Quentin Tarantino. And, of course, at the Hollywood Saloon, we mourn her passing as well. But, um, but really, and, and I know this may sound corny, uh, but, you know, we have the work. It's here. She made her mark. And that's what's exciting. And and if anything, um, the news today just uh, reminds and refreshes us about the director-editor relationship that that they had, that Quentin and Sally had, and that obviously, uh, you know, great names through history had had. And, uh, and honestly, you know, uh, we could have done an entire show, a massive show on this, um, which is real tempting to do. But I think it was important to look at it now as we see it today and how it affects that and how it all comes together. You're listening to the Hollywood Saloon. Cut. That was true. Hey, Quinn. Uh-huh. Uh, say hi, Sally. Hi, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> um, 